This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moe, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Every semester, the largest classroom at Northwestern University in Chicago is filled with hundreds of students who are eager to take a course devoted to Russian literature. The answer as to why comes down to the who. That says something not only about the class, but about the professor who happens to be my guest today. He's the Lawrence B. Dumas Professor of Arts and Humanities at Northwestern University, where he also serves as a professor of Slavic languages and literature. He earned his PhD from Yale University. Since that time, he's enjoyed a prolific scholarly and teaching career. He's authored more than 200 peer-reviewed articles. He's written a dozen academic monographs on Russian literature. But it is who he is as a teacher. And his most recent book, Wonder Confront Certainty, How Russian Writers Ask the Ultimate Questions and Why Their Answers Matter. It is that book that is the topic of our conversation today. Professor Gary Saul Morrison, welcome to Thinking in Public. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. You know, Professor, we've had a conversation before, but I have been eagerly awaiting this one uh, as I've been eagerly awaiting what at least I'm going to call your magnum opus, uh, uh, Wonder Confronts Certainty. Uh, I saw a reference in the publishing literature that an editor had suggested this to you, and uh, he may not have realized how long it was going to take to do this. I think uh, at that point you said that uh, you've been working on it for seven years. I'll just say it really shows. Uh, yes. No, he suggested it in 2016. This was an editor at Harvard yes. Press. came to me and said, I have the book you were born to write. <clears throat> and I said, really? You know, what's that? Well, tell us the whole significance of the Russian literary intellectual experience, you know, for the past 200 years. Uh, and I said, okay, well, I don't think I can do that because I'm an expert on the 19th century, but not on the Soviet period. I'd have to learn that. Well, learn it, he said. So, you know, I decided I would. Um, and uh, so for a couple of years, I, First of all, every time somebody asked me to review a book of 20th century literature, a new translation, I, I agreed. And then I kept reading the things I should have been reading, you know, had I been a specialist, and taking very careful notes on it and fitting it into this pattern. And, you know, at the end of about uh, five years of reading, <clears throat> I had these wonderful notes, and then I just had to turn them in, into a book. But if that editor, um, his name was John Kulka, had not suggested this to me, I, I would never have imagined doing something like this. So I owe him a great debt. And the he left Harvard Press, but the um, person who succeeded him, Kathleen McDermott, was, you know, really understood what this was about. <clears throat> and so I, I was doubly fortunate there. Well, we all are. I just want to say uh, on behalf of the reading public, uh, we uh, are all in debt to the editor's suggestion there. Uh, I, I would agree. This is the book you were meant to write and born to write. Uh, I, I do a lot of these conversations, and uh, books are such a big part of my life, including many of the books you discuss in this book. But, Professor, I just want to tell you right up front, um, this was one of the most significant reading experiences I have had in a very long time. And I, I say that with appreciation, but I also have to tell you, uh, I, I'm worn out by this book. Tell me why. Because you are dealing with literature 
that deals with the deepest, most intense experiences of humanity, the deepest moral questions. And so, you know, whereas I would say in comparison in English or French literature, even in in major writers, uh, you find lighter, darker moments, uh, forms of literature, uh, experiences and issues discussed. Uh, I say this with great appreciation. I hope you hear it that way. Uh, reading uh, Wonder Confronts Certainty is a, uh, it's an emotional experience. I, and and I, I find that even in just thinking about portions of it. Well, I'm glad to hear that because, you know, that's what attracted me to Russian literature to begin with, the fact that it takes the world so seriously. Um, and asks, you know, the Russians call them, you know, the accursed questions, meaning accursed because they will never be have a final answer, right? Um, ultimate questions, which are always of relevance everywhere, the kind of, you know, universality to them. Um, and it's as if, you know, well, Tolstoy is like this, you know, it's, you feel like you're being held by the throat. No, you must think about this, right? You can't live without it. Um, and I find that absolutely thrilling. And I tried to convey some of that. Um, and, you know, people debate so intensely. Um, and I tried to orchestrate the different positions. And I pretended that everybody was sort of in the same room together, even if they lived a century apart, answering each other. Wow. Uh, um, and there's a literary precedent for that. You know, there was a form in antiquity um, called the Dialogues of the Dead, where they did just right. that. And, you know, they were written also in the Renaissance and even right in, you know, up to the present, they, they've been written. Um, and I tried to, without literally having them in the room, imagine what each would say to each other, you know, orchestrate the arguments as if everything were present and they were present to each other. Um, and then... You know, there aren't final answers to these questions. If there were, they wouldn't be accursed questions. But you sense, you understand the questions a lot more deeply. And if you don't know what the answer is, you at least get an appreciation for what the answer can't be that you might have thought it was. <clears throat> I am a, a theologian, Christian, Protestant, confessional theologian. Uh, I'm trained in history. I am an ardent reader of literature. Uh, I tend to read literature if 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 I I have to tell myself this or remind myself of this. I tend to read literature as a theologian and as an historian. Well, I read it as a philosopher, so it's pretty similar. Right, but but you understand the the the, the fact that I, I I I have to remind myself to disengage not. As if I can be someone else as a reader, but I, I I have to pay attention to the text, and 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 what the author is doing, and uh, you know you, you can have historical literature that's about very moving experiences or moving moments, but the the, the historical prose isn't very moving. Well, uh, you you can have that in in any field, but what makes this Russian literature so. Uh, overpowering at times is that it refuses to to disengage yes and part of the idea i mean that you'll get in many of the writers is that 
if you simply approach the question abstractly as a series of arguments, <clears throat> you're missing something very important. Um, there's a great deal that you can only learn through experience. And that's why it's told by having you, let's say, trace the character's experience. You know, you identify with the character from within, let's say, as she goes through, the, you know, the experience of different views of love and how you live them out or of meaning. And it's the experience in life or by vicariously that teaches you something that the arguments, arguments wouldn't. Um, you know, there's a, a Chekhov story I talk about called Lights. It's about, you know, an old man and a young man, um, both engineers. And the young man, you know, believes in a version of nihilism, which he gets out of Ecclesiastes, you know, well, it's all vanity, nothing matters, so I'm free to do what I like. And it's all meaningless anyway, we're all going to die. And, and the old man tells a story to say what's wrong with thinking that way, but he doesn't conclude that Ecclesiastes is wrong. He concludes that Ecclesiastes is wrong when you're young. Nah. But it can be, if it's the product of a lot of life experience, it won't lead to that kind of cynicism. It will lead to something else. And now, you never get a philosopher, strictly speaking, to say it's the same argument, right? right. But it's not the same argument by how you live. That's why you need literature as well as philosophy, you know, to, to deal with, with, with this. Well, you make that point, I, I think, very tellingly late in the book when you point out that the novel, uh, uh, or the novelist, let's put it this way, can tell a story in which the character does things that are unexpected. Uh, and you actually compare that, I don't know, maybe to, uh, I, I know, I remember one of the people you compared it to, you said, you know, James Bond <laughs> will always do what James Bond <laughs> I does. I see, I see, okay. Uh, that, that's your example. I didn't but remember I said that, okay. But you yes, did, yeah. Uh, but when you look at uh, the characters of Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, uh, Chekhov, uh, and others, uh, you see them develop and morally change, even in ways that you argue were unexpected when the novelist uh, began the work. Yes. And, you know, if the novelist is really good, the novelist will allow the character to develop as a person would, which means they will be surprised because that's what makes a person a person, right? Um, and of course, the novelist could force the character to do what the novelist planned in advance, but then it will seem like there's something false to it, right? I mean, you know, one of my favorite examples of this is, um, you know, uh, when Dostoevsky was writing The Idiot, uh, <clears throat> he picked this hero who was a Call him a Christ figure, but without supernatural powers. Perfectly good man, right? Um, and the question was, would he, would the, his example cause more good or more harm? Good for obvious reasons. People would be admiring. But harm because, you know, you, you tend to resent people who are better than you. And you can say, how dare you? I'll show you. Right? And you could wind up causing more harm simply because people resent you for being better. And Dostoevsky was the master of that second kind of psychology, right? He, of course, he didn't want it to win, but he understood it. But at the end of the novel, it does win. And he just records it because he's intellectually honest. That's what would happen. He was quite disappointed with that. And so, you know, he tried to 
Karamazov an attempt to rethink that, you know, because he didn't want the Christian idea to show up. Uh, but he was completely honest and he would, it surprised him, but he recorded it, you know. Uh, Professor, I, I want to take us back to the beginning of the book. And, and by the way, it, it's, it's a massive book. And uh, I, I uh, heartily encourage listeners to read it uh, because it's an immersion into philosophy, morality, theology, history, politics in ways that uh, are, are very difficult otherwise to combine. But when you begin modern Russian literature, you really begin it in the time of Tsar Alexander II. So yes. why? Is that arbitrary? Is that, uh, but, or I, I know it's not. So why during the time of Alexander II? Well, it's at this period, say he's Tsar from 1885 to uh, 1855 to 1881. Um, in this 26-year period, there's probably never been a more intense you know, period in literature and history of the world. You, know, you get the four great Dostoevsky novels, you get War and Peace, Anna Karenina, you get Turgenev's great novel, and a lot more, right? Um, you also get an incredible intensity of you know, intellectual thought. You get I mean, the first formulation of the idea that what we call the neurological theory of consciousness, you know, comes up. Uh, the period, Mendeleev invents, invents the periodic table of the elements. <clears throat> the first translations of Darwin are into Russian in this period. And so, but all the great questions are defined in this period. You know, the radicals, the intelligentsia see it one way. The great writers respond another way, and they all push the, the radicals push their idea to the extreme, so you can see, you know, where the ideas lead. <clears throat> you know, there, there's a wonderful passage in, in um, you know, George Eliot's philosophical novel *Middlemarch*, where you know she says, "But you know, it's a good thing about Englishmen; <clears throat> they." Can it entertain the most radical ideas with no actual scorching? She said, because they go home and eat their dinner like everybody else, right? Um, you know, well, that's not true of Russians, right? R Russians take it to the extreme and try to live it, right? You know, if you think that, you know, well, you know, all morality is simply prejudice and murder is fine, you actually become a terrorist, right? You know, and, 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 and there were many, many, many of them during this time. This is when the modern terrorist movement is, you know, is born. I mean, by the end of the century, by the beginning of the next century, you know, there were, it was, there were so many terrorists that, you know, it, and it was, you know, a career that was inherited from parent to child, including daughters, right, who, who would become terrorists. It was a family tradition, you know. There were thousands of them killing thousands of, you know, people, and it was considered the most Next to being a great writer, it was considered the most prestigious occupation in the world. What do you want to be when you grow up? Oh, I plan to be a terrorist. <clears throat> well, it was, a, of course, a dangerous career choice, but it was a respected one. That, that kind of thinking begins 1855 to 71 in a terrorist movement that begins in the 1870s and leads to the assassination of the Tsar in 1881. <clears throat> um, and other officials, too, but the Tsar is the culmination. And that was a disaster because this was the great reforming you know, Tsar. Russia never had such a reforming ruler, you know, before who, you know, introduced, you know, Western law courts, you know, who liberated the serfs, who, you know, you know, 
institutions of local self-government, which would not be you know, immediately directed by you know, central officials. It was a, an amazing period. And, but you know what happens in cases like that is the more you get, the more you th think that, but it still falls short of utopian perfection. <clears throat> and you get more and more frustrated and they murdered him. Um, and of course, things got a lot worse after that. Um, Indeed, and, they, they did. Uh, you know, Professor, wh wh why Russia? We, we, we began here, but uh, I mean, this isn't like the literature of any other, we'll call Russia European in the sense. This isn't like the literature of any other European nation. This, this, is, this is unique. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it, it, it's something that can be explained only by Russian experience. So wh what in the world makes Russia so different? I, I, I could offer a historical argument. I want to hear your argument. Well, you know, first I'll just mention that what you just say is what took, what made Russian literature take, you know, Western Europe by storm in the century. If you just read, for example, Virginia Woolf's amazing article, The Russian Point of View, her appreciation of Russian yes. literature, you know, but she's not the only one, that there is a sense in which the main character is always the human soul and it yes. will not let you not take things seriously and we polite englishmen of course we're sort of a little embarrassed to raise questions like that but here it is right um and you know she re recognized that a writer like that well tolstoy was so much better than any other writer who ever lived that you couldn't even remotely compare you know, any, anyone to it. and he addressed those questions why russia <clears throat> well you know these reasons are never um are always inadequate. So, I, but I can suggest a few things. I mean, you know, Russia had um, under Peter the Great been rapidly Westernized overnight. You know, people started dressing differently. You know, different table manners. Women come out of seclusion. They started. You know, they picked a Western calendar, and which didn't date from the beginning of the world. You know, like the like in the Hebrew Bible, but, you know, from the birth of Christ. And they, you know, modern science, the first universities came in, came in the first, you know, Academy of Science. Everything comes in all at once. And they have to absorb all of Western culture very rapidly. So that, I don't know, um, writers who might be two centuries apart in England and feel very apart come in at the same time in Russia, so they feel like contemporaries, right? And um, this, you get a sense when you do this, that things aren't rooted. Things are not natural. Culture is not natural. It's up for grabs. Everything could be different because yesterday it was, okay. Hurriness of norms. And that kind of creates an intense, um, you know, an intensity of the question because nothing just you can revert to habit and another thing is you know you it, it's an an authoritarian society i mean there were authoritarian societies in europe but you know the degree of authoritarianism in in russia was so extreme that people let's say used to austrian authoritarianism couldn't imagine something like this right when they, they were shocked by it um and so there was never any room, let's say, for 
educated people to have the slightest political influence whatsoever, even the type they would have under, you know, an, an absolute monarch. Um, there was nothing, absolutely nothing. So naturally, with no practical experience, they thought in extreme philosophical terms of ultimate yes. good and evil, because they never had to temper it with actually doing anything. <laughs> so that would be another reason. Yeah. Well, Professor, you know, uh, it, when you consider just uh, the, the czar, Alexander II, you mentioned for, famous for his reforms, but that is the problem, isn't it? Is that if you are an, a, an absolute autocrat, if, if you have total power, if you're a despot in the sense that the Russian czars were extending far beyond what other monarchies would have imagined in Europe, uh, if, if, if you try to reform, the problem is you set loose, as Dostoevsky would say, demons. And uh, they they cannot be stopped. And so, it, you know, and one of the sad ironies, and Solzhenitsyn points this out, and the sad ironies is, you ask the question, what would have happened if Alexander II had lived? But he didn't. He was assassinated. Yes, and Solzhenitsyn also points out that even under that terrible czar, uh, Nicholas II, he had an, one extraordinarily good prime minister, <clears throat> um, Stolypin, who was eventually assassinated. And, of you course. know, Lenin's famous yeah. record, having said that, you know, if he had been able to put his reforms through, <clears throat> there would have been no revolution. <clears throat> um, that's why he had to be assassinated, of course, you know. Um, uh, if only, you know, Solzhenitsyn likes to say, if only he had lived. If only he had been wearing a bulletproof vest that day, you know. Right. Um, and he had been warned. And he ha had been warned. Yeah. And indeed, the person who shot him was probably a double agent working for secret police and and the terrorists at the same time <laughs> um you know so the he imagines the russia that might have been bolshevism was not inevitable a whole this is the russia that might have been that should have been and he imagined right he, he, and by the way this is one of the reasons you know one of the, one of the problems i talk about in the book is the question of historical inevitability or are there actually alternative paths and the same is true in, alter, in in individual lives and that becomes one of the great debates and you know a lot of the, and a lot of the writers too they try to show you that um i'm going to tell the character's life story but it didn't have to work out that way here's a case where it easily could this is just one of many possible stories here's a, a moment when it could have gone the other way here's another moment when it could have gone the other way Whereas, you know, many novels try to say, well, at the end, you see, it had to be this way. <clears throat> you know, we see in the end that everything, you know, for Tolstoy and Dostoevsky and others, that constitutes that a misleading implication of good structure. Good structure makes you have the feeling that it had to be that way. But that is not what real human experience of time is like. The human experience of time is the possi other possibilities are genuinely there. They're not an illusion. So you try to overcome, you know, that bias of the artifact, as I like to call it, towards inevitability, towards fatalism. And, you know, so some of their amazing experiments, like in War and Peace, for instance, are an attempt to convey that sense that whatever happened, something else might. Yes. In history uh, and individual lives. 
the 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 span the scope is is often beyond our, our imagination but i w- one of the other aspects of russian literature you make very clear is the the microcosm uh, you know the the intensity of dialogue the intensity of of the the development of of character and uh, the intensity of emotion i i have to tell you that uh i i at several points even in your book and and having read so many of the texts behind it i mean frankly you you forced me or helped me to read it in a different way. And in a way that's just not true of so much other literature, it, it comes with an enormous emo- emotional force. I, I'm an older man than I was when I started reading this. Maybe that's a part of it. But I mean, when, when, uh, when I was uh, redirected by you to some of the passages from Vasily Grossman, uh, and they're heart-wrenching. I, you know, in, in other words, I, I, I feel like uh, there's something in this Russian literature that just doesn't exist in in, in the modern America. You know, yeah, I, I I have uh, uh, I have interest in like what, what, what John Updike is up to, kind of speaking about the uh, you know post-industrial, post-Christian you know society. But that's very different than what the Russians are doing. The Russians take me back to Genesis. Yes, I mean you know that there's nothing wrong with being interested in you know post-American post-industrial society in America, but that's being interested in a particular historical moment. The Russians are interested in all that, but they're also interested in the ultimate questions of the human condition that would be true anywhere. So you get extremity, you know, the extremity, for example, of conditions under Stalin in the Gulag, which, you know, I mean, the only thing you could, I guess, compare it to you know, is, um, you know, <clears throat> and as Grossman compares it to, to, you know, the Nazi death camps, <clears throat> but, you know, they existed for a comparatively short time. They didn't affect the whole society, <clears throat> right? Um, you know, in fact, as Grossman points out, one of the differences between um, Nazi Germany and <clears throat> Soviet Russia was that, you know, in Nazi Germany, if you were a good, loyal, ethnic German, you know, not a Jew or a gypsy or anything. And, you know, you weren't, didn't criticize the government. You were safe. Nobody's going to arrest you. In Stalinist Russia, everybody was subject to it. The secret police were busy, busy arresting each other. You know, you know, the top generals would be arrested. Arrest would be by quota, right, for, for, for a given area. Um, you know, this was something extremely different your most you arrested your most loyal supporter nobody was this is a whole different sort of thing and then you know <clears throat> you know in the nazi camps <clears throat> well you know you know i was just reading primo levy's you know accounts of his experience when you arrive at auschwitz you know they first separate those who can work from those who can't <clears throat> and they immediately gas all those who can't <clears throat> And then he described, but of course he wasn't, he was, you know, in the other group. Um, and he described the working conditions. And well, the Soviets didn't immediately, you know, send anyone to the gas chambers. <clears throat> so in that sense, it was better. But the working conditions, what shocked me about the book is that the working conditions that Levy thought were intolerable were like a paradise compared to those in the Soviet <clears throat> I mean, he compared he complains that they had to work in temperatures below zero. 
in the Kalima camps, you worked at 50 to 60 degrees below zero, you know, 20 degrees below zero was springtime, you know, I mean, it was, I mean, there's a passage I really love in one of the memoirs where, uh, you know, the memoirist writes that, you know, he says, if only we had been slaves unto Pharaoh in Egypt, as they say in the Bible, right? After all, we know they had families because they multiplied, the Hebrews multiplied, right? We know that they were pretty well fed, right, therefore. And of course, they didn't work at 50 degrees below zero in Egypt. That was, how are we? If only we had been slaves under Pharaohs. And these passages are, are striking. So it was extreme conditions. That allows you to ask ultimate question. What happens to a human being, you know, when the person has been hungry for months? Uh, the author of, you know, Shalamov, who wrote some of these wonderful stories, <clears throat> was himself, you know, in um, one of the Kalima camps. And I think he, if I'm getting my figures right, he was a big man who arrived weighing about 240 pounds. But at one point he was down to 90 pounds, <clears throat> you know, and he almost was dead, but then he got transferred to somewhere where, where he could survive. And he described the narrowing of the human soul under those conditions. What emotions are lost? What ways of thinking are lost? And then he describes, there's one wonderful story where he describes how the pro, it begins to reverse itself. He was put in a place where he was fed. And he says, now what emotions came back first? <clears throat> Fear was first. Huh. Even before that, you had reached the point where you didn't give a damn whether you lived or died. Fear came first, all right? And then love was actually didn't come back for quite a while. And this is a kind of, anthropology yes. that no anthropologist has ever done to describe the human soul right in those conditions <laughs> again the closest thing i can think of is you know um let's say i don't know victor frankel's memoir of Auschwitz. Right. <laughs> it, that, it's that sort of book but you know um and, but you know, it, 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 it is hard to say this without without saying something morally wrong um it's it's a different form of darkness in terms of how it is not a phase in the culture but right. in, in many ways, it just becomes the culture. <clears throat> well, and Lenin was really clear about this. I mean, you know, uh, when he was, they were writing the first Soviet law code. Um, he instructed the person writing it, don't treat mass terror as something that we did just during the Civil War to gain power. It is to be a permanent feature of the regime. Period. Okay. You know, you know it's now <clears throat> for everybody. That's what mass terror means. I mean, even the Nazis didn't think of that, right? I mean, you know, well, they, and, and it wouldn't have worked. Uh, you know, uh, for instance, uh, one historian points out that had the Nazis tried to operate on the Russian scale internally, they would have run out of Germans. Um, so, you know, a part of this is at least is in part Russia's immensity. I mean, Russia didn't have to have Lebensraum as the Nazis wanted in a living space. Uh, they were living space, uh, which is part of the reason why Hitler right. declared war on Russia. He, 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 he wanted that space. It's just, it's, it's, it's like human life, all of it. And, and this is a point you just make. It's, it's not just selecting certain persons ethnically, religiously, genetically. It, it's just saying, Humanity isn't worth anything. Yes. 
mean, they did it, you know, extermination right. ethnic groups, <clears throat> and they all, and above all, social class, <clears throat> which was the equivalent right. of race for them. But they also just had it purely arbitrarily, right? At no point did um, Hitler have the SS turn on itself and start arresting other SS members, or just arrest generals arbitrarily. That's one reason they lost so badly when the Nazis invaded. Stalin had purged ninety percent of the top officers and admirals in the army and navy <clears throat> and so a completely inexperienced officer left you know why did he purge them there's no good reason except that terror wasn't you know terror was the basic principle of the regime <clears throat> so you'd have to ask why he wouldn't do that well and, and you know, the institutionalization of all of this at the service of ideology that's an that's another issue that comes up again and again in your book you don't use the term very often by the way um but but I think in in the background on almost every page is this human propensity to seize upon an idea at the expense of humanity, um, where human beings simply become cogs in a wheel of uh, of uh, some unfolding ideology. Uh, I, I've seen this before, but I'll tell you, just reading uh, Wonder Meets uh, Confront Certainty again, you know, you, you become reconvinced of the fact that Lenin and Stalin believed what they were saying. I mean, they, they, they actually lived it out. Yes, I think they did. I mean, and, and you know, by the way, there's a, you mentioned cogs in the machine. There's a famous toast that Stalin once gave for his, you know, to his followers, to the cogs. Hmm. People are cogs in the machine. We give a toast to the cogs. <laughs> he couldn't, you know, pretend it was anything else. That was the Bolshevik way of looking at things. Because, you know, if you thought that, well, you know, human life is valuable, we don't kill people, unless we have to, of course, <clears throat> that, that view would have been regarded as completely unbullshit. Bourgeois. Well, no, it could have been sort of these fuzzy-minded other socialists might have yeah, had something, okay. right? Yeah. Or Kropotkin, the anarchist. We kill people... <clears throat> but only the minimum that we have to. <laughs> From Lenin's point of view, that presupposes that human life has a sacred value of its own, so you economize how many you kill. But if you believe that, where do you get that idea of the sac No materialist view could get to that. People are just material objects. It means you must be, whether you know it or not, covertly religious to think that way. And the prime ethical principle was radical materialism, get rid of anything that's religious, especially the idea that there's something, you know, about human life, <clears throat> which is sacred. Then you're not a materialist anymore. <laughs> I think, uh, Professor, I read something you wrote very early uh, when you said that you had uh, studied dialectical materialism and, uh, and you saw it as an, as an oxymoron. It could be dialectical or it could be materialism, but it couldn't be both. I think that's a, a bit in play in what you're describing here. Yeah, I mean, this would always fascinate. You know, I, before I <clears throat> studied Russian literature, I was going to be a physicist at one point. And one of the things you don't do there is you don't attribute human characteristics <clears throat> to non, to, to atoms, <clears throat> to physical. You don't say that, you know, you know, a stone falls because it wants to reach the earth. <laughs> I mean, that might be a metaphor, but you don't really believe it, right? <laughs> I mean, 
What dialectical materialism does is precisly that. It dialectics is dialogue. It's human conversation. Right. And you attribute it. It's intelligence. Matter, right? And it's absolutely crucial to Marxism and Leninism to do that because unless you do that, you don't have the conclusion that it is given in the nature of things that not only is evolution you know, the human species given in matter, but the evolution of society as well as communism is matter has a direction, which is where history gets its direction. And if where, you know, if you're not thinking that way, if you're, you know, trained, I don't know, as I was in, I don't know, Newtonian physics, you think that these stones have a purpose in falling, you know, it doesn't make any sense. But for the but in the Soviet view, it does make sense. And that's why I was always so shocked that, you know, this is supposed to be materialism, but it sure doesn't look like their matter doesn't look material to me. You know, yes. it, you it know, won't stay it, material, <laughs> just merely material. Uh, in, in terms of, uh, for example, you just mentioned science. I mean, the Lenin and, uh, and the Bolsheviks, they were ready to throw science out if it didn't fit their ideology. Uh, but you know, it's one of the things I thought in reading your book. You know, this 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 eventually doesn't work, especially when you get into the Cold War. Uh, you've got to come to terms with uh, at least some science as it is. But the the power of ideology, and I think Solzhenitsyn uh, deals with this so so brilliantly. The power of ideology is so self blinding. It it certainly has to be a warning to us all. Yes, and people are. I mean, the, what the literature also talks about is, and some of the memoirs, how seductive it is. People want simple moral judgments, simple judgments about life, right and wrong. And so they will gravitate towards ideologies <clears throat> of, of this sort. They have an enormous appeal to people. And, you know, a lot of the writers describe what this appeal was and even people who should have known better, um, like you know Nadezhda Mandelstam, the wife of the poet Osip Mandelstam, who wrote she wrote these wonderful memoirs. Her picture is on the cover of the book, by the way. Uh, that's the, the woman on there is Nadezhda Mandelstam, whose memoirs I really admire. They're a wonderful piece of literature too. She describes how even her husband, who was eventually, of course, executed by Stalin, um, in the twenties, you know, says he was among those who couldn't bear to give up the idea of revolution, that we are on the side of revolution. It had, the word had a fascination and attraction that intellectuals could not give up. And she says, to the point where I wonder why they thought they needed terror and secret police. <clears throat> you know, it's an extraordinary passage, you know, and that's true it may not be the word revolution, but there's something, <clears throat> you know, that in many societies will have that kind of appeal that gets you to shut down thought. <clears throat> um, you know, uh, in the 19th century, you begin with Alexander II, uh, that period in which there was such repression, but such hope, there was reform, but then assassination, and then Catastrophe after catastrophe, and and then you have uh, nihilism that also appears at the very same time in, in a particularly intense Russian way. But then right. you do have the greats of Russian literature. But then you've got the Bolshevik Revolution. Right. Um, 
you know, do, do you draw lines of continuity? I mean, we're, we're not even getting to the, say, mid-20th century, but just in terms of, say, from the from Alexander II until the First World War, is 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 there a a break in Russian literature, or is it continuity? Because when you talk about the greats, you're talking basically about the 19th century. Well, the way I the way I set it up is, you know, in the 1860s, let's say 1860s and 70s, the argument is roughly speaking between the, the ideologues. Um, the intelligentsia, the word intelligentsia, which we get from Russian, but in Russian, it means, it doesn't mean intellectual. It's almost the opposite. It means, you know, politically committed ideologues. You don't even have to be able to read, but you can be a member of the intelligentsia. Whereas Leo Tolstoy would not have been because, you know, he believed in the complexity of things. He believed in God. You have to be a materialist. um, So he would never have been thought of one. Um, a moderate liberal couldn't be, you know, member of the intelligence. You get the argument between the intelligentsia in that sense and the great writers. One thinking the world is fundamentally simple and we know all the answers, the other about the complexity of things. And what happens is that now the intelligentsia gradually grows, so it has more and more strains in it. So to the point where this sort of intolerant one is only one of them. It's the most prestigious, but it's only one, but that's the one that seizes control. <laughs> in 1917. Lenin belongs to the, you know, admires the earliest intelligentsia people, the most intolerant ones, and he seizes control. And then the group that, you know, was opposed to the writers now is in control and can dictate what literature is going to be. And it's not going to be this sort of open-minded, complex stuff. It's going to be propaganda of the scientific truth. But it doesn't, literature isn't wiped, great literature isn't wiped out. It goes underground. <clears throat> a lot of great books are written, as they said, for the drawer. Um, and will a, there'll be a, a loosening called a fawn. Some things will come out that were written 20 years before, right? Or there's this Russian tradition of smuggling literature abroad, or even right. going into exile. A great deal of Russian literature is, is either written or published in exile. That was even true under the czars, but much more so under the Soviets. And so you, this, the great, you know, the Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, Czech tradition continues. It's just not official. <clears throat> so you get the official literature, and then this continues. Which is but known as Soviet realism. It's not social. <laughs> Socialist realism is the official. <clears throat> That's what I'm saying. The, 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 the official Soviet literature was this uh, socialist or Soviet uh, right. realism. Um, that leads me to want to jump to just into the 20th century. Uh, there's a sense in which uh, Solzhenitsyn is different, I would argue, and, and you're the expert here, but then Tolstoy and Dostoevsky in, in one sense, but he's continuous. So I, in, in other words, I, I, when I read Solzhenitsyn, I see a man who is on the other side of the Bolshevik Revolution and on the other side of some of the things that Tolstoy and Dostoevsky saw in their imagination, uh, Solzhenitsyn has seen them in life. So it, it's not that he was writing contrary to realism, but uh, against the lie of socialist realism. Yes. I mean, you know, nobody, with the exception of Dostoevsky, um, nobody before the 20th century could have imagined the sort of horrors that we got, you know, millions right. of people, you know, torture of 
and I don't mean like or well, the loose way we sometimes use the term. I mean real torture that was you know starting in 1937. Everybody arrested was subject to it, right? I mean um, then you know. I, I could go on and on about that. And the tortures are so horrible that I don't even want to <clears throat> describe them. And then winding up in his labor campus. And nothing could have been imagined there. So they, it raises questions about <clears throat> the nature of good and evil that, you know, Chekhov, George Eliot, nobody could have thought of, <clears throat> you know, before. Uh, you know, it, <clears throat> there's my, you know, my um, favorite philosopher, literary critic of the Russian period, Mikhail Bakhtin, his memoirs, some of his memoirs have come out recently. And in one of them, he says, you know, the Greek tragedians, <clears throat> Shakespeare, they were great writers, of course, but they were quite naive. <clears throat> they were naive because they could not understand what evil really could be. <clears throat> and so, you know, their evil yes. it, it seems petty. In, in the light of our experience. It's an extraordinary comment, right, you know, um, to make. And so the questions about evil that Tolstoy and Dostoevsky are asking now can be posed in a much more radical way against the background of this experience. <clears throat> and that's what Solzhenitsyn does and Grossman does <clears throat> and Sholamov and, <clears throat> you know, and a few other writers that, that, who, who can do this. And that's what makes them so, you know, <clears throat> absolutely riveting. Um, you know, uh, Professor, I think... Uh... When I teach moral theology, one of the things I talk about is situations in extremis. Um, and, you know, there's always the, the temptation to want to redefine morality in extremis. And, and the honest Christian theologian has to take the extreme situations into full account and honesty, but they still are in extremis. And so, right. you know, right. if, if, if you look at, for instance, when you talk about English literature or Shakespeare, every horrible thing that you could imagine in in Russia or in the Soviet Union, in all likelihood, happened somewhere. The the same extremity, but not as official policy, not as an enduring ideological movement, not as the norm. The the the, the haunting thing to me, and and this is part of why reading some of this is morally difficult for me. Uh, it's very heavy. Is that the in extremist now becomes the absolutely normal. This is the mundane every day. Every day is just this horrifying. <clears throat> yes, yeah, so, you know. You know, it's why you can imagine some Russian emigres or, you know, come over and, <clears throat> you know, they criticize Western life for not being serious. And, they're, and they say, oh, you just come from a strange, you don't understand what life is. You come from one of these, you know, weird places. <clears throat> and you, imagine, you think you know what life is, is the reply? You, I mean, who, who can't imagine, you know, anything worse than your retirement account for? you know, falling in value. You think you understand? Yeah, uh, you, know, you can see that, you know, that, that was for the reaction, for example, when Solzhenitsyn gave, let's say, a speech at Harvard, right? You know, um, and he, he wasn't the only one. Um, you know, I, I get the closest I can guess would be imagining, you know, someone saying that to someone who had survived Auschwitz. And people do think that, yes, well, their views are, are deformed by their unusual experience. <laughs> Maybe, maybe in some respects they are, but maybe your views are limited because they haven't had to confront real evil. Certainly not in the sense that uh, that Russian literature does. I, I want to turn the tables a little bit, uh, and and I guess before I do, let me just tell you that uh, 
one of the things about your book for which I want to express appreciation is that many of the works I have read uh, over a period of a lifetime, I'm, I'm now 63, uh, I read them 40 years ago or more, 45 years ago, when I was a teenager, or a young adult. I missed a lot. Uh, and, and so a part of me wants to go back and reread everything I've ever read. I just tell you, that's not going to happen. But uh, uh, I, I can do as much of that as I can. But, you know, if, for instance, as I mentioned, Vasily Grossman, um, in Life and Fate and in some of the Solzhenitsyn works, I, I think as a young man, I was reading a lot of it to get something out of it and missed a lot of what was there because I was, I was looking for something. Uh, and 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 perhaps even uh, more politically, apologetically, uh, philosophically attuned, uh, 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 because all these Russian writers give you that. They um, do. You see the detail, and and I, I appreciate that. You made me look at things I hadn't seen there before. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, I guess this this is a cliche, of course, but if it's if a li a literary work that you don't get a lot more from reading over a few years later <clears throat> if all you okay i got the message it's i'll just get it again it's not a great literary work <clears throat> right. you know just like a work where you say um well its significance is that it shows us i don't know the conditions of factory workers in Victorian England, as people sometimes say about Dickens. Yes, but if that's all that were, you might as well read a factory surveyor's report. It's not what makes it great. The idea that you, it can't be reduced to any message you paraphrase, although messages are there, um, and that it's of interest to people who don't care at all about the circumstances in which it was written. It tells you ultimate truths, right? I mean, there's a tendency, you know, that I went through, you know, as a professional studying Russian, that, that, you know, you read some of these great novels and the criticism of the papers of it, you know, well, you see, this is really an allusion to this event in Soviet history, and this is an allusion to this character. And, and you know, very often it's true. Sometimes the reasoning is for some, but if that's all it is, who needs it, right? You know, Right. It's yes, that's there, but that's not what makes it really important. Uh, professor, uh, there's another aspect that uh, I really think needs to be underlined, and, and you do that wonderfully. And uh, this is very much in Tolstoy, also in Dostoevsky. Chekhov, I think, to a lesser degree, but certainly in Tolstoy and Dostoevsky. Um, there is real human joy, there is real human dignity. There is real human faithfulness, and uh, I mean, you 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 certainly see that in the characters. It's a it's a mother caring for her children who turns out to be the hero of the story, not not a czar, not a commissar, uh, nor even her husband, uh, who has no idea what a husband's supposed to do. Uh, there the are heroes and heroines. Yeah, the, yes. the, the, yes. the heroine is really Dolly, that, that mother. That's sure. right. And she's not dramatic, right? Um, and there also there's a passage in Anna Karenina, um, which doesn't really fit the plot very much, but it's so important. It's about you know the hero Levin learning how going to peasants to learn how to mow, and he experiences incredible joy where he loses track of time, and he's so much you know. Today, there's a psychologist at the University of Chicago who rolls this flow, <clears throat> but right. it's right there. 
you know, how, what's, if you don't have that kind of experience in life, it's as if you've missed something of the most important thing, right? Um, you know, in, <clears throat> in War and Peace, there's a wonderful scene. Again, it wouldn't have to be there for the plot, right? The one of the heroes, not the, the most dramatic hero, just Nikolai Rostov, who's an ordinary guy, um, is home from the war. He's a soldier, and he's at a wolf hunt. <clears throat> you know, England they have fox hunts, Russia they have wolf hunts, right? And he, he's, he's, you know, he and his dogs. He's on his horse, lying in wait, whole, and he's begging God that the wolf will come. Oh, Lord, I know it's a sin to ask this, but make the wolf come my way and let my dog Karai get her <clears throat> by the throat. And then the wolf appears and goes, and the greatest happiness came to had come to him without any pomp or fanfare. <clears throat> and he doesn't even know what he's, he starts riding after. He's not even a you know, what happened when you're so focused, you're not deciding to ride. Right. And then it looks like the dog is going to fail. The wolf's going to get away. But then the dogs finally catch the wolf. And there's this, this amazing sentence. That moment when, and described in enormous detail, the dog has him by the throat and the wolf has his you know, ears laid back in terror and his legs and goes on and on and on. That moment was the happiest moment of Nikolai Rostov's life. <clears throat> Mm. Right now, you want to say, how do you know? <clears throat> but isn't it true that would be the sort of most happiest moment? And the crucial thing about it is that you are so wrapped up in the moment you wouldn't remember it because if you remember it, part of you is not wrapped up. It's, there's no part of you that's so. The happiest moment of your life is probably one you can't recall. That's a really interesting observation, right? And yet it would look sort of like this, you know? Now, I don't know any other writer who would give you not just those, the, you know, the horrors of things, but that unbelievably intense happiness, right? <clears throat> that, that you get there. That's also in Russian literature. Someone told me years ago about you uh, and, and your you're teaching at Northwestern. Someone said to me, uh, he knew that hundreds and hundreds of freshmen were trying to sign up for your class in Russian literature. And there had to be some reason. And he said, one of the things that you deal with in the class, which 18 year olds, young men and young women are desperate to know is that love is real. Can you expand on that just a moment? Because we, we've talked about all the darkness here, but I mean, th those hundreds of teenagers are trying to get into your class because they want to know that love is real. And it's not just that it's real. It's that it's one word for many different things. There are different kinds of love. And, <clears throat> you know, there's the love, you know, that Anna Karenina chooses, of, you know, the love of the the troubadours or Romeo and Juliet, the great romantic passion, which is incompatible with daily life. And then this family love, which is completely different, right? Um, you know, you can't <clears throat> have both at the same time, right? I mean, you, you know, in the classic European, of the romantic heroine marries and finds it very boring because it's not like Rome, Romeo, so he goes off and have an affair. It's not so much adultery in, in the European novel, right? 
But, you know, family love isn't trying for the most intense experience. The most meaningful experience is an ordinary prosaic one. That's a different kind of love. And the, the students, you know, um, the love of being a good mother, a good parent, is very different from the sort of love that, that's in the sort of Hollywood romance, right? Both are real, but they're very different, and you must choose. <clears throat> and I, that when they see that, you know, that I think that helps them sort out their values, which which they want. You know, <clears throat> um, sometimes you know I've occasionally gotten um, students bring their parents to class, and more than once I've had after class a, a mother come up and say. Thank me for my lecture for showing what's so important about motherhood. <laughs> you know, yeah. well, well, it wasn't me. It was Tolstoy. You know, you know, yes. who, who was, I was paraphrasing. But you know, if you're looking for a truly romanticized image of life, <clears throat> oh well, being a mother, you know, it's kind of boring, right? Not for Tolstoy. It's the most important thing in the world, right? You know, so the students get to see. Okay, there's this love. There's there's more loves than that. There's the love with you know of Dolly's husband, which is basically just pleasure, right? You know, um, and there, there's several times of love, um, but they get concrete pictures of what a life devoted to each of them is. And then they can make a more informed choice. It doesn't tell them what choice to make, but it lets them see what's at stake, and, you know, so they're not sort of stumbling blind. Well, this, I'm supposed to marry who I love, <clears throat> I guess I love, but love can be more than one thing. Marry who you love in what way? <clears throat> you see, they begin to think that, oh, no, it's, I have to think this through. And they have the literature to show them that. That's what I, I hope it will do and, you know, make them make wiser choices in their life. Uh, professor, you have, uh, you've been my teacher in Russian literature and, uh, for that, I just want to say thank you. And I want to commend the book, Wonder Confronts Certainty, Russian Writers on the Timeless Questions and the Way Their Answers Matter. Uh, better than the book is the opportunity for the conversation with you. And I want to thank you for joining with me today for Thinking in Public. Well, thank you so much for having me. It, it, was, a, it was a delight. Thank you. Many thanks to my guest, Professor Gary Saul Morrison, for thinking with me today. If you enjoyed today's episode of Thinking in Public, you will find more than 185 of these conversations at albertmoeller.com under the tab Thinking in Public. For information on the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, go to sbts.edu. For information on Boyce College, just go to boycecollege.com. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. And until next time, keep thinking. Keep thinking.